Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January the 20th, 2021. This is episode 2809. It's Wednesday, so it's time for an interview. And I've got a couple of longtime members of the audience doing some really cool stuff. John and Ashley Longnecker. They have a website called tinyshinyhouse.com. What is a tiny shiny house? Well, it could be a lot of things. In this case, it is a uh, retrofitted, old-style Airstream uh, RV. They used to call those things land yachts. And they're still living in it, but they're doing it differently. Uh, about five, six years ago, they decided to become nomads. And they got this uh, RV, and they started traveling all across the country. And they started living uh, out of an RV as, as a digital like a digital nomad type situation, right? And um, they kind of fell out of love real quick with the living conditions in RV parks. So they did some changes to their RV so they could do more boondocking type things. But eventually came around to, if we really want to put down roots for real, then we're going to have to settle somewhere. And they, they, de they decided to settle in Cochise County, Arizona, as in southeastern Arizona desert. We'll be talking more about that and a lot of other things with them today. But uh, they're now building their off-grid homestead there, living out of that RV while they build things like earth bag houses and things like that. It's going to be a great interview. And it's just two normal people with some kids trying to build freedom into their life. And that means I think it will fit really well with you guys out there in the audience. Whether you want to do it that way yourself or not, we're all inspired by journeys of freedom and walking to freedom. And they've done just that. We will bring on Jonathan and Ashley in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. Herbs and I go way back, guys. Um, the first time I ever was exposed to what herbs could do, I remember my grandfather um, had done a pretty nasty job on the inside of one of his fingers. It, I don't remember what he did, but it kind of looked like he took like a like a potato peeler and just shaved off the entire inside of, of like your ring finger from like where a ring would be up to the tip of your finger on the inside edge. And he, uh, he put some, uh, some comfrey and some plantain on it, just leaves and wrapped it up with a bandaid. And it was only a matter of days before it was completely healed. And I was like, wow, my grandfather's a sorcerer. He can use plants to make people better. And it was a pretty amazing thing. And I've never forgotten that. And I love using the herbs that grow in my backyard, but I can't get everything that I want. And so when I need a preparation or a raw herb or any kind of material to make herbal uh, salves or something like that myself, any of that stuff, I go to westernbotanicals.com. And if I need help, I call more real people, really answer the phone, and really talk to you and really care and help you with your customer service needs. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. This is a... One of the most successful movements that I've seen in modern times. Basically, what they've done is they're moving as many people as they can to the small state, and it's easily influenced state of New Hampshire, as they can who love liberty and are dragging New Hampshire against its will, kicking and screaming into the world of liberty. And you can learn a lot more about it by maybe going up there and visiting New Hampshire. It would be a great thing to do. 
just go to fsp.org, and you can find all their stuff there. But if you go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH, you can learn all about how you can turn a vacation into exploration of maybe you walk to freedom instead of walking to the uh, the desert like we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Maybe you walk up into the northeastern United States. Uh, check it out, and it is uh, it is really an amazing group of people. Uh, I've been privileged to work with now since 2009, so you know I really dig what they're doing to work with anybody for that long. Let's start out today with a quote of the day before I introduce Jonathan, Jonathan and Ashley, and this is really going to sum up kind of their, their nomadic lifestyle and then a choice to embrace a little bit more grounding. Vernon Howard once said, Our freedom can be measured by the number of things we can walk away from. That's a really interesting way to look at things. I don't know that I've ever really looked at it that way. Some of the freest people in the world are what we might think of as the most impoverished. Because they can pick up and go wherever they want, whenever they want. Now, that's a nice thought and all, but there also is a, is a place for having things that you don't want to walk away from. And maybe you don't even mind not being able to easily walk away from them because you willingly put yourself into that situation. We're going to talk about this today with John and Ashley about how when you have livestock, it changes things. Because you can't just walk away because they'll die if you're not there to take care of them. And so how much freedom do you have when you can't walk away from something? It depends. Did you choose it? Did you choose it with open mind and open eyes? Or did you choose it blindly? So many people in our world today, I think while they're miserable is they lack freedom. And in many ways they lack freedom because of choices they've made that they didn't really understand what they were doing when they made those choices. Seems totally unrelated to our subject today, but how about student loan debt? So many young people, 17, 18 years old, apply for all these loans to go to college based on a belief system that turns out to not be exactly true. And then they're saddled with that debt for the rest of their life. You can't walk away from it. You can walk away from Visa and MasterCard. You're going to get a bad credit report, but you can just not pay until they give up. You can declare bankruptcy. You can never escape that student loan debt. That's an example of like a type one error now, isn't it? However, there's a lot of people that have convinced themselves they can't walk away from things. And they can. Maybe it's not easy. Maybe it requires some steps first. But how much is your freedom worth? Our freedom can be measured by the number of things we can walk away from. Not that we will, but we can. With that, let's go ahead and get into this subject today, which I think is awesome. And let me welcome again from tinyshinyhouse.com, Jonathan and Ashley Longnecker. With that, hey, John, Ashley, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, let's uh, start off with, why don't you guys just kind of individually, you decide who goes first. Because I ain't getting in the middle of a married couple. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about your backgrounds and, and like how you guys found each other and, and uh, kind of what you did professionally and, and and before the subject that we're talking about today. Let's let's break it off before we get to y'all relocating. Gotcha. Yeah. So let's see. We met and I was out of college. She was in college. I was in a band. She saw me playing. <laughs> she liked it, so she introduced herself after the show. And uh, we got married about a year later. A year and one day. A later. year and one day, yep. And um, so that was around, that was 2003. Yep. And we lived in Tennessee. I was from Tennessee. My whole family was there. Ashley was from Indiana. And... But going to school in Tennessee. So I kind of feel like Tennessee was home. I've lived a lot of time there. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, so we lived in Tennessee for 12 years, 12 years in a, in a couple of normal, you know, suburban houses. Um, we did homeschool. We have four kids. So we did homeschool from the get go. Uh, I've owned my own business since the, you know, our youngest was just a couple of years old. So I've always kind of worked from home and been location independent. So uh, around 2015, we sold our house and we bought a trailer, an RV, and we started traveling the country with the kids. And um, that was a huge, like we'd never done anything. We'd never even been in a trailer before. Like it was a huge sort of jump and leap. And while we we did that for about a year and realized that we did not like RV parks. Um, <laughs> we had this romantic idea of what traveling full-time would be and being crammed next to other rvs was not that dream no it wasn't <laughs> we quickly were trying to find how we can make this dream happen the way that we envisioned it yeah so we'd heard about this thing called boondocking which is basically just camping off grid you know without hookups and um had sort of a transformative experience. Uh, well, it was, it was part disaster that turned into a transformative experience. <laughs> a big disaster. Yeah, we we were not we did not have the right you know vehicle or RV for doing this, but we tried to do it anyway. Totally got stuck in the mud at Lake Mead. Um, it was almost like really really bad. But some friends came and pulled us out, and they're like, "Hey, we're we're camping off grid with like four or five other families." Um, why don't you come hang out with us? And so it was out on, it was in Hurricane, Utah, near Zion National Park. It was like right on the edge of a canyon rim and it was glorious. And we were like, this, <laughs> this is what we've been missing. We want to camp like this from now on. Yeah. Um, so, but we didn't, like I said, we didn't have the equipment. So we sold that rig. We bought a 1972 Airstream. We gutted it and renovated it specifically for camping off grid. Um, and then spent the next year, three years, three years, three and a half years, just everywhere, all over the U.S. We went up into Canada, um, boondocked as much as we possibly could. And saw as many national parks as we could. That oh, was like yeah. a big goal, too. And I'd say, uh, you know, probably a year or two into that, we were starting to think about um, where we might settle down as the kids got older and the trailer got smaller. Quickly outgrowing our trailer. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were kind of like, okay, what, what are we going to do? And I, and I think we knew that we had been ruined. There's no way we could go back to like a suburban type lifestyle. Um, and so that led us to looking for off-grid properties. And that kind of brings us to where we are. the current situation, which is we have bought said property and we're beginning to build out a homestead on it. Very cool. So how's the transition been from being full-time travelers to, to more conventional homesteaders now? And if I, if I could ask Ashley when you're talking, if you could just lean a little closer to the mic there so you're a little soft yeah, compared sure. to John. Yeah. So the transition. Um, so, you know, a lot of people that move out in this kind of situation have kind of a, a pretty big shock. You know, there's, there's no power, there's no water, like there's no services on this property at all. Uh, and we were used to that. So that part of it wasn't that difficult of a transition because we were used to camping off grid. We already homeschooled. We already worked from home. We were already together all the time. We liked each other. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that worked out pretty well. Um, and I, I do think 
it was a little difficult to sort of drop the nomad lifestyle and settle into like a single place. Um, that was, that was a tricky transformation for sure. Yeah. But really we couldn't have done it at a better time. It was right at the start of the COVID crisis. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah, true. And we had just put in the offer and when everything was starting to shut down. So really we couldn't have done it at a more perfect time. Right. Traveling was getting very difficult, like to be able to find a spot, you know, some states were starting to lock down. And so it, it did come at a pretty good time of, you know, having our own spot that we could stay at without having to worry about, oh, where are we even going to be able to go next? Because so many things are shut down. But essentially we are still camping off grid. Right. Yeah. We're completely off grid. Right. So, um, and we still have the views. We still have the solitude. It's, it's everything that we wanted in camping, except it's ours. Yeah. And so I think initially that when we moved here, it really wasn't that huge of a transition. But now that we've been here nine months, almost nine months, um, and we've started to sort of build out some infrastructure, and most importantly, we've gotten some animals, um, that has started to help us, especially the kids, I think, transition from you know, spending their time homeschooling and then adventuring. And now they've got, you know, chores and they've got animals to take care of and um, and sort of additional responsibilities here around the property. Uh, so that's been fun to see that transition. It's got to be interesting, too, because as soon as you add livestock, I know from personal experience, you ground yourself more to your property. So you go yep, from this total nomadic freedom to, hey, if we leave, the animals will die unless we find somebody to take care of them. It's It's got to be a significant uh, transition. But on the other hand, I've always said that if you live tiny home, mobile tiny home, RV, whatever, when you stop, whatever you have is like freaking Taj Mahal. Because now you can have stuff. Now you can, if you need more space, you can, if nothing else, you can throw a tough shed up. I mean, there's so much mm -hmm. you can do now. It's trade-offs, right? Like you don't have the freedom, but you have lots of freedom. And you don't have the restriction of space. Now you got lots of space. It kind of flip-flops. Right. It's definitely a different kind of freedom. For we, sure. There are days, for sure, when, we're, when, I, when I see all the magnets on the wall of the places we've been or the stickers, you know, that are on our door, and we're like, ah, oh, I really wish we could just pick up and go to a few national parks today. Yeah, or in the <laughs> summer when it's over 100 degrees for a whole month and we're miserable <laughs> yeah. in <our> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I've always um, said the yeah. only thing that sucks about Texas is the summer because yeah. that's why we don't have saunas here. We just have three months out of the year where there's one outside. So yeah. y'all pick the one place that's hotter than Texas to move to in Arizona. <laughs> What made y'all uh, decide Arizona was the place to call your new home? That's a good question because obviously we kind of had our pick of wherever we wanted to go. We weren't tied down to any place, and so we looked everywhere. Yeah, our last year was spent trying to decide which state we wanted to end up. Yeah. But we kept coming back to Arizona every single time. Yeah, we – being from Tennessee or from the East Coast, really, because Ashley's from Indiana, too, like – The desert was like a wonderland for us. We we're like, what is this place? It's so different. And right. it's just like, it's so different from, you know, the areas that we grew up in. Um, and we, especially in the winter, you know, we spent a lot of time camping off grid in the desert and really just fell in love with it. Uh, and yeah, like you said, Arizona, they're the people here and there's so many sort of ecosystems. I mean, we can drive a couple of hours and be, you know, and, 
in mountains up in the snow or, you know, we can go down near the border of Mexico. Like it's, there's so many different types of places that you can go here. And we, we love, cause we know that if we do any traveling again, it's not going to be going all over the country, but at least in Arizona, five, six, seven hours away, like a day trip, we can still get to a lot of really cool places. That's absolutely, that's absolutely the case. I, uh, I worked for a company headquartered in Phoenix for a while. Yeah. And it amazed me, you know, you could drive up out of Phoenix just about an hour and a half and hit Sedona <laughs> and you had that just yeah. beautiful kind of painted desert environment. But just keep going a little bit and hit that <laughs> Black Oak Canyon between Flagstaff and Sedona and it was like being in the mountains of Colorado. Yep. Right. And yeah, then you've got like crazy. you're in southeastern yeah. Arizona. So then you've got true uh, what people think of when they think of desert. And that's all just hours apart. And you keep going. You're in the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's it's amazing yeah. the diversity <laughs> in that part of the country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So once we decided Arizona, we did a whole bunch of research and we were really looking for a place where we could kind of build the way we wanted to, which is. Alternative housing? Yeah, we wanted a place where we had the freedom to, to build with alternative methods like earth bag or straw bale. Or cob. Cob, uh, rammed earth, like that kind of stuff. We, we had sort of our big goal with this is that we wanted to, we wanted to move somewhere where we could do this as debt free as possible. We didn't want to have to buy, like, buy an existing house. We wanted to build it ourselves with the kids, like as, as a part of a huge project. Um, and we wanted to be able to do it as we had the money and not have to go through a bunch of red tape, right? And as sustainable as possible. Right. The types of buildings we want to build would be really difficult to get, you know, approved for building permits and codes and stuff like that. Not that we're not going to build them properly, but it's just so... It's it, a different type of building that not many people are used to. Right. It's, properly it's and to code are not the same thing and I, I would actually say yeah. that if you care about our planet then building to code is one of the worst things that you can do though you may have to depending on where you live so in some cases yeah for sure yeah i mean there's so many things we can do with housing that make it more sustainable but is absolutely directly opposed to code now right. like you said properly is properly and if it happens that code and proper overlap oh okay like, I'm not going to build my house. I'll, I'll show you. I'll make my house fall down on my head, you jerks. You can't yeah. tell me. But, like, have you ever noticed that, with the exception of, like, the third world in the middle of an earthquake zone? Because that's just a disaster waiting to happen, period, right? With that exception, we have all these places all over the world that people build all types of housing with no government intervention, no codes, no nothing, and very seldom, like I said, outside of an earthquake zone, do they fall down on people's heads. It, it just, it's amazing that somehow people crazy, don't right? kill themselves with their housing. And somehow people have <laughs> done this for like 12,000 years or more. And, yep. but now we need government to tell us how to build a wall. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons we moved to this area. So we're in Cochise County, Arizona, which is a pretty big area, encompasses a lot of different cities over here, but they have this thing called the owner builder opt out. And that is something that you can apply for if you live on rural property that's over four acres in size. And it basically lets you opt out of all those inspections. Um, you're still supposed to build, like I said, properly into code, but, but you don't have somebody coming over and like 
Telling you to put GFCI switches, you know, on yeah. every plug in your house, and you don't have, uh, you know, an inspector coming coming in every couple of months and like making you redo stuff. Right. It's very um, lax out here. I yeah. guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we are building to code, but we have the freedom to build our alter- alternatively, yeah. which is a huge process. And the other big aspect of this is we're allowed to live in our RV. So many of the places that we looked would not allow us to live more than two weeks out of the year in our RV while we build. On property, property oh we own, right, which is crazy, but that's just kind of the state of, of land. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they do have an RV permit they give you for three years. So you got basically you have three years to build your house and then you can get an extension if you need to. Right. Um, but that, again, that ties back into that whole, we're trying to do it as we have the money, as we have the time. We want to do as much of it ourselves as we can, and that gives us the freedom and the time to be able to do it that way. You know, it amazes me that you have to even deal with things like that. And my my I know. <laughs> my state ninjutsu mindset immediately kicks in. I'm not living in there. That's my construction cat. That's my construction office. Right? That's, that's, right. that's where we keep our office for 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 construction. We're we're acting as our own general contractor now. Please piss off and get out of here. I mean, like. But you have to be in a place that's already kind of predisposed for that for that to work anyway. And it yeah. sounds like what y'all defaulted to was freedom. So, like, there's tons of places you could make a better climate case, I guess, in some ways. But what you looked for was as much autonomy and the ability to live your life your way as possible. Yeah. And actually the area we're in, we're at about 5,000 feet elevation. And so we actually have pretty decent weather here. This summer was, was very strange. It was hotter than normal, but generally your, your summers aren't too bad and you actually get a little bit of snow and we're still in the desert. So, so that that did, yeah, that did factor into the season for sure. That high desert is an interesting thing. I did a project years and years ago with Brian Black. Uh, from ITS Tactical, and we were out um, filming in uh, Big Bend Park, and in, in out you know mm. way way west Texas, and it was hot there. Let me tell you, it was like, <laughs> but we like the closest place to there with an actual hotel um, that we could get was a place called Marathon, and it was about yeah. ninety miles away, and it's still <laughs> right out in the middle of that, but it was up in a higher elevation. It was amazing. It was August, you know, yeah. and it was it was dry and it was re- cool relative to the surrounding area. It's like on a, pla- on a high plateau, and and yeah. I I did think right away, you know, I I can't live out here, but I could live here, <laughs> like five yeah. days of pulling uh, cactus thorns out of my thigh and pushing myself <laughs> to the edge of dehydration, like the general region negative. <laughs> But the but the climate type that Marathon was in sounds very very similar to the climate type that you guys are in in Cochise County. I do have a an oddball question though. When anyone tells me where they live, I stick it in Google Maps and get an idea of the area. Right next yeah. to Cochise, the city, not the county, there looks like a giant sea of sand. Do you guys know what the hell that is? <laughs> it used to be a lake. Oh, okay. But it's not anymore. It's oh. a, it's a ba- dried out basin. Yeah. It's amazing. It used to be a lake and it's surrounded by little round dots that are agriculture and now it's not a lake anymore. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. That Probably because they, they sucked it dry. Yeah, that answers <laughs> that question. So, moving on from there, what have your, what have your biggest obstacles been when, 
you you know when you it's come to moving off grid and starting up your your property because these stories are always wonderful. We always talk about all the great freedom and everything, but like anybody that's ever done anything like this knows like there's this idea, oh that didn't work. Oh there's this idea and it worked, but it sucked until you got <laughs> through it. So what have been your kind of your holdups, your hangups, your obstacles? So um, let's see. The first big obstacle when we got here, uh, and again like. The lifestyle was cool. Like we're used to being off grid, so like that whole thing wasn't a big deal for us. But water was a pretty was sort of our first big obstacle. Like we needed water. We were used to when we camped off grid. You know, we would haul it in in the back of our truck and transfer it to the fresh tank in the RV. We and, got really good on living off forty gallons for a week. <laughs> yeah, like we're used to not using a lot of water. But when you're parked somewhere permanently, like you really need a good supply of water. Um, and so we looked into a lot of, a lot of options. Wells out here are kind of a crapshoot again because of the agriculture and a lot of wells dry up pretty quickly and they're crazy expensive to drill like 10, 15, $20,000, maybe even more. Um, so we were fortunate enough that there, we found a well share, uh, about 10 minutes from the property that we could haul ourselves. So we got like an IVC tote and then we, put in a big 2600 gallon um, water storage tank that you would typically use for like rainwater storage um, and then we just transferred it to the fresh tank every day and that was that was okay but it was real annoying like <laughs> doing that every single day was frustrating um, and so then that that started us down the whole path of trying to figure out a way to essentially have that water come in pressurized like we would be hooked up to city water somewhere um so and we lots had and lots of trials and errors oh there was a lot we did that wrong so many times we <laughs> eventually we settled on an insulated pump house with a solar panel and a, a car battery inside that runs an rv pump with a huge accumulator tank and then we trenched underground so it pops up right near the trailer and it creates the pressurized water that just comes in the city water inlet And that took us probably two months to figure that out. Um, but now that it works, it works, and it's right. great. Um, and it's it's not our permanent solution. We hope to eventually do rainwater catchment. That's our ultimate goal is when we start building, we're going to have tons of roof space. Yeah. So we'll be able to get catch the little bit of water that does fall here. <laughs> you um, have a very limited time frame. It, it monsoons in the summer, so you have these massive rains, but they're very short. So you have to have the roof space and the storage space to kind of store it for the rest of the year. So that's also a big investment. And it's we'll, a huge investment. We'll get there eventually. We don't even have any roofs right now. Um, <laughs> one day we will have but roofs. One day. But for now, this works. We can we can haul 300 gallons at a time and then transfer it into the bigger tank. And so it takes us an afternoon to transfer about a 1,000 gallons, and we only have to do that once a month. That's a cool way to get over it. I think the rain catch is a great idea. And people are like, he lives in the desert. So I know. Right? <laughs> I look up all kinds of things when people tell me where they live because it's just my brain. And y'all get about 14 inches of rain a year, which is an extreme low amount. Average U.S. wide is 38 inches. But right, yeah. it's a lot of rain if you got a lot of roof and a lot of tank. And the the thing about the desert is – It doesn't take much if you start using desert-adapted plantings of additional water mm -hmm. to create an oasis. And uh, I guess the other thing is I've always thought about, like, how the hell would I build a New Jack City out in the middle of the desert? And uh, <laughs> it would involve an awful lot of 
roof. Like, even where there's not a building, because the shade is good anyway. Like, yeah, I mean, I'd be putting up as much, like, pole barn looking structure as possible. And uh, whatever couldn't go in a tank overflows into a basin and grows something, you know. I think that's that's long term probably your best bet. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, fingers crossed, hopefully this summer we'll be able to build a ground roof solely for the purpose of catching rainwater because we know it's going to take us years to get all these buildings up that we want to do. Um, moving on from there, um, what's your biggest project you've completed so far? Oh yeah. So definitely that would be our fence. Um, I don't know if you know, but Arizona is a free-range state, which means that out here there are herds of cattle, and it is their right to go wherever they may please. Uh, and it's our job as landowners to keep them out if we want to keep them out. So when we bought the property, uh, like we said, there's literally nothing on it. Um, and we were here a few months, and, you know, we started to, to add some things. We added, you know, some... some uh, the water tank. Yeah, the water tank, and, like, we added some garage-in-a-box type sheds so we could store some tools and things like that. And, you know, cows like to rub up against things. They like oh, to yeah. chew on stuff. Uh, and it, we got to the point where we didn't feel like we could leave for more than a couple of hours without, you know, worrying about cows destroying something. And I think there was a – it was one morning there were two bulls fighting about 100 feet from our, our huge water tank. And we were like, you know what? <laughs> we need a fence. <laughs> um, and so that started us down. Like, again, we're trying to do as much of this ourselves. Had no idea where to start. Never have put up a fence in our whole life. No, 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 no. Of course not. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we we ended up finding a, another YouTuber. Uh, his name's Moses from High Desert Homestead. And he's been doing fence for years. And he kind of helped us price out a few options and then he actually came down to the property and did a workshop and taught us and like other people how to do it and they between all of them we got maybe a third of it finished um and so then it was kind of up to us to do the rest of it and we it was all done by hand um it's a high tensile nine strand electric fence with wooden corner posts um it turned out great. Like we look at it and we're like, we can't believe that we actually built this fence ourselves because it actually looks good and it works. Yeah. <laughs> but man, it was so much work and it was in the middle of the summer. It was miserable. Like I don't think we've ever worked that hard in our lives. Yeah. It was, it was a bad timing, but it needed to be done that at that time. So. Yeah. We didn't have a choice. We couldn't wait. <laughs> how much, um, how much area did you fence in and how much area do you actually have? So we own two parcels that total about 11 acres, okay. um, and we fence the parcel that our house will be on, which is six acres. That's a lot but of it's fence. An ab- <laughs> yeah, but it's also an abnormal shape. It's like a T-shape, so that like uh, doubled all of the corner posts. Oh, really yeah, corner posts are a pain in the yeah. ass. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> That's, the auger about killed me. Yeah. Why does everybody <laughs> do everything square? Put up a fence and you'll find out. That's why. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> gardens can be on contour. Fences should be in as much straight line as you can. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and if you, if you don't know why corner fence posts are a pain in the ass, folks, just put a fence in. <laughs> that means that you're like, you're like, uh, uh, John and Ashley here. You haven't done one yet, and when you do, 
You'll you'll join the fold of hating corners. Um, <laughs> what projects are you uh, tackling now? So we have we actually have started our first building. It's not our house. Um, we we have a really robust um, solar setup for our airstream, but we know that we're going to need a much larger system for the property. So. Um, as part of that, we needed a place, we're going to need a place to be able to store the batteries and the inverter and sort of all the gear, you know, that goes along with that. And so the first building we're building is a solar shed, but we decided, hey, if we're going to like build something, let's make it a little bit bigger. As long as we stay under 200 square feet, it's considered a shed. We don't need a permit or anything for it. So we're, we're designing and it's a hyper adobe earth bag, uh, Basically, an office slash hangout room that also happens to hold batteries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, you know it, it, what? What just irked me was the word permit. So you've yeah. moved all the way out in the desert. <laughs> you can build an earth bag home or whatever, but you still need a permit to build a structure over 200 square feet. And, and yeah, I'm just a dick because I just had this vision. It looks like a. Um, it, it looks exactly like uh, uh, a thing I watched on uh, the Curiosity Channel um, for the Earth uh, for, for building space stations on the moon, where you build like one and then you build another one around it, you connect them all. And I, I'm just seeing like 10 200 square foot dwellings connected by tubes, and take your permit and shove it. I mean, like, really, I. Wow, I well, had no you're not idea. Far off. You know, you're not far off. Yeah, we have lots of small buildings planned in our future. <laughs> yeah, the compound comes into its own in that world, man. Like, yep. what are you? I live in the desert. I'm building my house with dirt. <laughs> what are you bothering me for? Go away! Oh my god. Yeah, the only permit we had to get was for the residence, the single family residence, yeah. and basically all we had to tell them was where the sept is going to be what the square footage will be and how close we're going to be to, to our property lines. And that's pretty much all they check when they come, when they come out, when you're done, which is, which is pretty lenient. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, anything under 200 square feet, we can do whatever we want and you can do a lot with 200 square feet. We live in 20 square feet with six people. So, so we're, we're okay with that. We don't mind, um, you know, I don't think there's any limit on how close together they can be either. Like, right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And with kids, so, you know, you start to create your own little partitions, your own little wings, and your own little, like, you know, world where, you know, they can go do their own thing and have peace and quiet. Because, you know, bringing grandkids into my home every day after several years of living with just Dorothy and me, noise is a thing. <laughs> and kids, we're used to that. Kids yeah. make noise, man. Like, yeah. you know, like you go to a New Year's party, like, you bring noisemakers? I brought my kids, so we're good. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting the the variances on what you need permission to do. Like a mile mm-hmm. down the road is Suburbanville from me, and you need everything that you need. And and, and like it's as bad as it gets in Texas, I would say. Right? Like it's not as bad as Massachusetts, where they're like, yeah, we know this house is like two hundred and fifty years old, but since you're remodeling it, you have too many windows on that wall, which is a thing. The window that right. was there for 200 years has to go because there's too many windows. I'm, I'm not kidding, right? So, like, we're not that bad, but it's bad. Where I am, 
I actually have less restriction than you do from what you just told me. Like if I want to build a house here, the only thing I need is a septic permit. It's 500 bucks. And basically, if, as long as I'm using someone the state says is qualified to put a septic system in, then they, they don't even look at it. They're like, oh, Bill's, you know, septic is doing it. They're, they're licensed. Okay, here's your permit. And then they go away. And until I build like a meth still or something like that, no one ever comes back. <laughs> and it's amazing to me how that variance is because, yeah, like I said, down the road from here, it's not a mile, it's two, but two miles down the road from here, it's HOA hell. It's full of Karens. And, sure, and, you yeah. know, it's amazing that, you know, you go way out there and you still have some finger of the state. But it seems pretty limited, and that's good. Yeah. I mean, we could we could certainly build a two, anything over 200 square feet. We just have to go through a permitting process. We sure. just have to let them know about it and probably pay a fee. So we're trying to avoid those fees. Give upgrade his money. Build smaller buildings. Yeah, give yeah. upgrade his money, and he'll let you do what you want. I got you. What What yeah. does your dream off grid homestead look like? Like I used to do this when I was in sales, and I'd be helping somebody plan out a network or uh, an OEM project or something, and, and and to get them to open up, I'd say I give you a magic wand, and you can just make it anything you want. What is that for you? If I said here. You go, guys. Here's a magic wand blessed by Jack Spirico that will make your homestead however you want it tomorrow. But you only get to wave it once, so you better pick what you want. What What do you get? Um, I think for me, it's I want to see it green. Um, I've been following a lot of like Jeff Walton's um, permaculture ideas and like trying to figure out all his. Ways that he greened the desert, and I figure if he can do it over there, then I can do it here in Arizona where we have a little bit more rain. And uh, just so much trees. I want to be able to feed our community. I want to be able to have enough for us to store for a year and not be stressed. <laughs> we want to get more animals, grow more food, and be able to provide for our family, but also for the community. Yeah, and I and I think we also want the kids to have their own spaces. We want to be able to build lots of really cool organic buildings, you know, that are made with as much uh, you know local materials as possible. They they sort of fit into the landscape, you know. They don't stick out. Um, yeah, we're we're also trying to not disturb as much of our property as we can. So right. we're looking for areas that are already bare where a house could be or where a shed could be, you know. So we're trying to keep it as natural as possible and just throw in our little pieces that we want here and there. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like the big thing, too, is we want to be self-sustaining. So right. we've got that rainwater catchment set up. It's working great. Same thing with the solar. We've got probably even multiple independent solar setups, you know, for different buildings. Um, yeah, and all the homes will be using as much passive solar energy as we can. Right. We have a great area for that, and we're going to use it. Yeah. We you just know, want to see it finished in five years. Finished, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not going to be finished. No, but. probably not. <laughs> I, I don't know if you all saw the video that I put out recently featuring Brad Lancaster, who's in Tucson, which is probably an hour-ish away from you guys, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Uh, but he's amazing. When it comes to like water harvesting, desert climates, and whatever, he lives in Tucson. Yeah, we have his book. <laughs> oh, you have his book. I would yeah. totally, if I were you guys, take a day trip, man, and go to his neighborhood if you can get him to 
talk to you or whatever, great. But even if not, just to walk that. If I'm ever in southeastern Arizona, I am absolutely going to visit that neighborhood and, and, and physically look at what he's done because it's it, it would be unbelievable if it wasn't for the, the miracle of modern video, right? Like if somebody <laughs> told you what was done – By cutting some curbs and putting in some rain catchment systems, you'd be like, yeah, bull crap, right? But <laughs> when you look at it, it's amazing. So I would definitely avail y'all selves of that. Tell him Jack Spierko said hi. He'll probably tell you I'm a jerk and he's not wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we've been pretty, pretty impressed. Like we've, we've done about a lot of that kind of stuff here. I just, we, you know, we know people are doing amazing things out here and we'll just, try to get a hold of them and be like, hey, can we come visit and like ask you a million questions? And everybody said yes. So everybody is so great out here. Yeah, and the community, like everybody's wanting to help each other and see each other succeed. So that is like a big draw for us too, is just being part of this community out here. Yeah. Can y'all talk a little bit more about the community that you have found? Because, I mean, a lot of times people think, well, I'm going to move out in the middle of the desert and I ain't going to have nobody <laughs> to help me. And it sounds yeah. like that's not the case for y'all at all. It's not. It took some a while to like find people because where we are there's i think our closest neighbor like we can barely see the roof but um <laughs> yeah so everybody's really spread out here but the more we go into town and talk to people the more people we find that have the same interests and are trying to do the same thing and we just make it a point to like get together and really talk to each other and figure it out lots of them have tractors we don't have tractors <laughs> but i'm um, like There's trade-offs, like they'll come and move dirt for us. We'll go help them with the fence, you know, just yeah. different things that we can do to help each other out. Lots of that sort of raising the barn oh, kind yeah. of thing out here because, because, you know, nobody out here has all the things that they need, but together we can help each other out. You know, if somebody doesn't have that tractor or maybe like I went and did some drone work for some friends the other day because they wanted to see how their building looked from up above before they, you know, got it up too high. And so so there's a, there's lots of ways that we can all help each other out. And everybody's so cool out here. They're so interesting and unique because I think you have to be a little bit to, to do something like this. To want to live out here. Yeah, right. Um, but they're they're unique in, like, all the best ways. And so we've loved getting to meet everybody out here so far. Yeah, and, like, you guys have a skill set now that that's pretty valuable, fencing. Yeah, right. can, I mean, that's, yeah, like, I, I'll do a lot of trading for some fencing and, What's your, uh, what's, I, I know it's sand, right? But what's your soil type like from a standpoint of, can y'all dig a hole? Cause like that, my biggest limitation is I can't dig a hole. And I almost think I'd trade desert for temperate climate if I could dig a hole. You can with the right equipment. Okay. Yeah. We, <laughs> it's very hard. So we have friends that, you know, are a mile down the road and they're like solid caliche and okay. it's hard as a rock. Uh. And it takes a lot to get down in. We have actually pretty good clay and sand content, and it's actually mm. the perfect mixture for building this earth bag house that we're doing, or hyper adobe that we're building. Like, all we're doing is mixing that with some water and just a little bit of cement, and it's like rock hard by the time you tamp it down. Um, so, but again, like, I know what you're saying. Like, if you, if you dig too deep with this soil, it could cave in on itself because okay. it's not, it's a little loose until it gets wet. Um, But it's working pretty well for what we're doing. But so you far. can right. dig. Like, being yeah. able yeah. to dig. Y'all say it's hard. You don't understand what I mean. I have a limestone slab. 
that in some instances is four inches below the surface of my soil. And I don't mean pieces of limestone. I mean a slab. Where I live was at one time underneath something known as the 50 million years ago as the Great Inland Sea. And it's literally a fossil ocean bed formation that, that kind of pinches on a ridge right where I live. So the fact that you can dig a hole is glorious to me. Because people always say, you know, do an earth, you know, uh, do a wall, a peony greenhouse or whatever. Yeah, okay, you do it. Make sure you bring some dynamite. So, okay, yeah. If you can dig a hole, yeah, you are in good hole. shape, man. Because you can do what Brad says, right? You can plant the rain before you plant the tree. And that's going to be critical in y'all's climate. Um, where do you see yourselves with your homestead five years from now? Where, where does this all lead? Well, hopefully we have refrigeration by then. And <laughs> <laughs> right, right now we're raising some meat animals, and we have some dairy animals that we're working with. And so hopefully we'll grow those over time and have more than enough to feed our family and other people. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, other than the things we already talked about, about being like power independent and water independent and all that stuff, I think eventually we would love to be able to, to teach the community, right? Like we did that one fencing workshop and we had so much fun doing that. And we're not in a position right now where we know enough to teach, but we're hoping within five years or so we've amassed enough, you know, knowledge that we can, we can have people out here. We can do workshops. We can, we can have people come and stay on the property and work on projects with us and, and be able to teach like that. Yeah. I really hope our property looks drastically different from the surrounding area so that people want to come here and they want to learn what we're doing and see how it works for them. You know, that's a key thing too, with making people understand what you've accomplished because people will look at a property and say, ah, okay, that's pretty nice. It has a lot to do with where it is, right? Like making something lush in Pennsylvania, just stand back and get out of the way. Right. Making something lush in, in, in the edge of the Blackland Prairie here or where you guys are in Cochise County, Arizona, you have to look at it in the context of, you know, what does it look like to the left, right, and, and behind and in front of it, right? And it's amazing how rapid that transformation can actually occur because there's – so much in that area that's that's naturally desert, but there's a lot of it too that's unnaturally damaged. When you tell me free ranging cattle, like ugh, like mm -hmm. I I'm not one of these people's against cows, right? I, I, the cow and me have a very close bond that involves me eating it. You know, mm -hmm. at least five to six <laughs> meals a, a week of mine involve a bovine of some form, and and I have a great deal of love for them, but they require control especially in a brittle ecosystem. And by able, enabling yourselves now to exercise that control by fencing them out and hence having control over whatever you do, that transformation that some people may look at and say, well, that's a long road. I think it, your five-year idea is not that far off. I think that you will have a radically uh, different look to your property And what you'll have, which is ironic, is probably a lot closer to what it looked like before we went and screwed it up. Um, I think yeah, we've right. convinced ourselves that, like, West Texas to California just always looked like it does now. And it didn't. 
you know, no, no, no more so than you know, parts of Egypt where the pyramids are now are surrounded by sand. It used to be one of the most fertile pieces of land in the world, and uh, maybe it wasn't quite that good there. But that ecosystem's been harshly damaged, and we need folks like you, you know, showing what can be done. Because once you show what can be done, it's crazy. Other people tend to do it too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so y'all want to tell everybody how they can learn more about what you're doing? Because I know you have a pretty cool website where you've got all this documented. Sure, yeah. Um, we're at tinyshinyhome.com. We're also Tiny Shiny Home, sort of all the places online. Uh, we're doing a lot of YouTube stuff. This past year, we're really trying to grow that. So there's a lot of fun videos about the progress of what we've done on the homestead so far. Um where else? Instagram? Yeah, Instagram. Anywhere. And just look for Tiny Shiny Home. Yeah, Tiny Shiny Home. Easy to remember. <laughs> well, I've got all your stuff here in the, the notes for this episode, so I'll make sure they're all in my podcast notes as well so people can awesome. look you up at tinyshinyhome.com. And, guys, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, that was just a, a fun interview, and I hope it inspires you. And, you know, if you want to live in the desert, fine. If you want to live in the mountains, fine. If you want to live in the coastal region, fine. If you want to live anywhere, fine. The model is more important than the place, right? The model that they've exemplified. Um, maybe you don't want to travel the country, but there's still something of a model in that they taught themselves how to live in a way that they would need to live to have their dreams, and then they applied that training as they established their homestead. That's pretty cool. And uh, that is a model that is a model of success if you want to walk to freedom yourself. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Come check us out. Uh, and see all the stuff that we have for you uh, recommended and reviewed. If it's there, I own it. I bought it, spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do. Today I'm bringing an item around that I brought around a bunch last year. It was one of my top 20 selling items last year. Tons of y'all are obviously using it. I've not had any complaints about it. It is a uh, nutritional supplement called Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract. And I originally found it because Nurse Amy was concerned because Joe, Doc, Doc Bones, um, has several... Um, uh, pre-existing conditions that put him at particular risk from COVID. And one of the things that happens to people when they get into severe reaction to COVID-19 in the hospital is what's called a cytokine storm. And uh, she was able to determine that there's this incredible amount of research on specific mushrooms that have a tendency to reduce uh, either the occurrence or the voraciousness of cytokine storm. So she got uh, Doc on it for that reason and started digging more into the anti-cancer properties of these mushrooms. And that's what kind of blew me away. And there's an incredible study that goes along with this write-up that you can read about. Um, but I've been looking for something like this for a long time. And generally, to be able to use enough of these mushrooms on a regular basis of these various uh, types is pretty expensive. This comes out to 14 cents a day. And a $45 bag of it will last you 161 days or a bit over five months. And that's, that's how long it'll last me and my wife both using it. So an individual, it would last about a year 
That's pretty cheap, guys, and it's uh, it's one of those things. I can't say that it works, but I can say that the, indi- the 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 research would indicate that it would be one way to risk to reduce the risk of cancer in your life, among other things that mushrooms do for us. I believe that we we have only begun to sort of, kind of, in a weird little bit of a way, understand the miracle that comes from the world of fungi, and there's so much more to be done there. And until then, 18 cents a day or 14 cents a day worth of mushrooms seems like a uh, pretty low risk and potential insurance policy uh, to mind your health. So check this stuff out again. It's called Sacred Seven Mushroom Extract Powder. I also want to throw something else out today um, with alternative media, in this case, video. Uh, as you guys know, a few months ago, I set up an account with Library TV, LBRY.TV. And right after I did that, Jeremy Kaufman came on the air and announced that they had started up Odyssey, which is kind of their 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 flagship website now. They're really kind of the same thing, but all the new cool features are on Odyssey.com, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com. Well, you can earn money there in cryptocurrency in the form of LBC coin through tips. January, I've already done the numbers and run the calculations. I'm going to do better in earnings on library in January than I will on ad earnings on YouTube for January. Not a lot better, just a little bit better. Now, that doesn't include the money I get because I'm a partner and I can invite you and I can get like eight LBCs if you click my link. So please, if you're going to join you haven't yet, go by the website today, look up the show notes, click on the link that says join me on Odyssey and do it that way. So I get my my little my little tidbit there. I'm talking, though, in, in tips from people that watch video go, I like that video. Here's one LBC, Jack which right now is like 11 cents. I'm going to do better on Odyssey than YouTube financially, and I'm getting paid in cryptocurrency, and it's between me, you, and the fence post, if you know what I mean. And I'm converting the LBC, most of it, not all of it, but most of it into either Bitcoin or Pirate, and I'm doing it when LBC peaks in its value. It's got a pretty decent cycle up and down there, and uh, it's worked out really, really well. And then getting all my content from YouTube over to Odyssey was as simple as setting up an account and saying, yeah, do it. Really, I implore you guys, especially those of you that have channels, please. Look, I don't care if you click my link. I don't care if you follow me. I don't care if you have anything to do with me. If you've put effort into putting your content on YouTube, obviously you think that what you have to say and what you have to show is important. You're trusting that Google won't decide someday for any reason at all that they don't like what you've done and delete your account. Please take the opportunity and set up your library slash Odyssey account and import your content from YouTube. And then if you never even look at it again, if you forget about it, every time you publish to YouTube, it will magically appear on Odyssey and library. You'll make more contacts. You'll get more exposure. And if you ever want to use it, it'll be there. Please Do not let your voice, please do not let your story be canceled. We're living literally in the world that is cancel culture. And this is way more important to me than the 80 cents I'll get if you click my link. If you, if you, if you listen to the show, follow me, click my link, whatever. I mean, that, but that's not, I just look at the people who I really love what they do on YouTube and think someday, They say the wrong thing in the wrong place. Google, YouTube will shut them down. We've had people lose their accounts on these platforms who didn't do anything on the platform that the platform objected to, 
But somebody somewhere found something they said somewhere else that was taken however they decided to take it and made a big pitch, pitch, a bitch pissy fit and then got them deleted. That shouldn't even be a thing, but it is. Please. I'm serious. This is, this is a serious moment here. Don't let your voice be freaking silenced. If they take down what you have to say and what you have to show, they're taking down something you've left behind, whether you realize it or not, for like your great-grandchildren. Think of how much it would mean to you if you could sit down and watch videos of your great-grandparents telling you about their life at that time, uncensored and unfiltered. When we're being deplatformed, they're not just silencing what we have to say today. They're silencing our message to our descendants in the future. Don't let it happen to you. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today with our song of the day. Song of the day today is by uh, by Natalie Merchant, who I'm, I'm roughly familiar with, but I'm not real, real familiar with, and I've never heard this song before. It's called Maggie Said. And when I looked up the song facts on it, Maggie in this uh, in this song is a person, a real person, but a real people, right? <laughs> what do I mean by that? Uh, Natalie in an interview said that, that Maggie was a combination of multiple real people, kind of an amalgamation. But Maggie is a woman at the end of her life. And this song is so beautiful, but if you really listen to the words, it's so damn sad. I mean, it's the kind of song you listen to when you're having a scotch and a cigar on the back porch. It's kind of got that cool groove sound to it. But it's a person at the end of their life realizing, I've got nothing. It doesn't explain how she got there either, exactly how you get to having nothing. Being alone when you die sucks, but I guess with this song is not only saying that I'm alone now, but when I look back at my whole life, not only did it lead me to the point where I have nothing in the end, because let's be honest, in the end we all have nothing. Because dying is something you are going to do alone. I want you to think about that for a minute. I don't care if somebody's sitting there holding your hand. There's a point that you cross where you're alone. Because you're doing it and they're not. So we all have that moment to look forward to or to fear, depending on where we've come in our mental state with dealing with it. But hopefully just before it, as we look back, no matter what the circumstance is, because we don't get to pick the circumstance that that happens in. It could be in a car wreck laying on the side of the road. We don't know. We have to have a certain amount of fatalism in our life. But if we have that moment to look back, that we can look back and feel that what we've done matters that our dash was well spent, that our time on earth meant something. In the end, in the timelessness of the universe, I don't know how much the entire human race will even matter. There's a stoicism there that's probably healthy to take in. But there's also the reality that Odds are we're not going to see the end of the world. There's a lot of people that think we are. They've been disappointed for thousands of years. I have a feeling they'll continue to be disappointed for thousands more. So that means there'll be people here. One time, I was asked what I really want out of TSP, at a workshop. And the answer I gave sounded kind of conceited, but it wasn't. It was immortality. And I didn't want immortality in that 50 years from now, if somebody says, do you know who Jack Spierka was? People are like, oh, he was a great man. Like, I'd be remember like Shakespeare or something. No, what I meant is that I want to know 
that the things that I've done in this world have influenced people who will influence people that will influence people that there'll be some ripple of my influence making the world just a little bit better of a place long after I'm gone, even if nobody knows it was me. It's not important that anybody knows I did it other than myself. We can all do that. And that way, when we face the moment that the woman in this song is facing, we're not going to end it with nothing, 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 because we'll know there were plenty of somethings. If we make the most of our dash. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Maggie said, Dig one more shallow grave before I'm dead. Maggie said, I'm just looking for a place that I can lay my weary There's no perfect end, just time to leave. Maggie said, they rake the table at the game of love. Maggie said, It's just stupid luck if you rise above Everybody's sinking in debt We know lose my friend It's so hard to leave Holding back What did I It's so hard to find the golden fleece To spin my golden thread And my gaze You're preaching to the choir girl Now you're not sticking out your leg There's no risk in there Darling, please
Come on. 